welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is May 26th, coming live from all over the world is Tiffany, Doug, Elliot, and myself, Erica. Welcome all. Hello. Hello. (laughs) So we apologize for the slight delay this morning. We're giving virtual hugs to all our listeners. (laughs) Glad you could join us and be patient. Today we are going to discuss healing hugs and therapeutic touch. From the day we're born until the day you die, touch is a vital component of humans' emotional and physical health. Touch is a means of communicating compassion and trust. It recharges the immune system, aids in baby's growth, reduces stress, stimulates oxytocin and dopamine, and lowers blood pressure and heart rate. Plus, as an added bonus, it feels great. Yet many of us suffer from a touch deficit and are deprived of the essential contact that helps us bond with others. So today on the show, we're going to discuss the importance of platonic touch, including hugs, cuddles, massages, and Reiki. And as a wise psychologist once said, we need four hugs a day for survival, we need eight hugs a day for maintenance, and we need 12 hugs a day for growth. So hopefully today's show will help your meet your touch quota. So welcome all. We are going to go with our uh, topic here and talks amongst ourselves. Please, if you have anything in to add, comment in the chat. You can try and call in. We're not sure how our communication system is working. But here we are. What do you guys have to say? Did you get your hug today? I didn't. <laughs> but it's too bad that we didn't do this show on January the 21st because January 21st is National Hug Day. It was invented by some guy somewhere in 1986 or thereabouts. And uh, it became a national thing. Well, and there's uh, people throughout the world who have encouraged hugging. And I'll just start with my little story sharing. In India, there's actually a woman called the Hugging Saint. Her name is Ama. And she practices her darshan or meditations by giving hugs to the people around the world and thousands of devotees come to her. She's considered a guru or a saint. And in 1970, she started hugging people as her darshan and she's hugged over 33 million people. That's a lot. So in 2002, she was asked to what extent did she think her embraces actually help the ills of the world? Like, do your, do your hugs really do anything? And she replied, I don't say that I can do 100%. Attempting to change the world completely is like trying to straighten the curly tail of a dog. But society takes birth from from people or life. So by affecting individuals, you can make changes in society. And through that, you can change the world. You cannot change it, but you can make changes in yourself and for others. The fight in individual minds is responsible for wars. So if you can touch people, you can touch the world. So Amma, you can look her up, A-M-M-A, the Hugging Saint in India. Does she charge? 
No, she's free. <laughs> okay. She started charitable foundations, and uh, during Hurricane Katrina, her foundation raised over a million dollars for the victims of Katrina. So she's doing her best. And uh, some days it says most of her last 30 years, she spent 20 hours a day hugging people. It's hmm. a lot of hugs. That's an extraordinary amount of hugs. <laughs> Just checking here. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Yes, we can hear you. Okay, good. I was having my own technical difficulties here, but I, they appear to be resolved. <laughs> well, apparently there's more than one way of hugging. I guess when we picture people hugging, we picture them you know, face-to-face with their arms wrapped around each other. Sometimes with their butts pooched out because they don't want full body contact. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's, what is this one? About five? There's the uh, back to front hug. Hmm. I guess if you come up behind somebody and you give them a hug, uh, it's a good way to show support and affection. And it lets somebody know that you have their back in a way. And then there's the bear hug, and you give them a little squeeze gently, hopefully, so you don't break their ribs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people use this kind of hug when they want to display very strong affection. Like I picture this kind of hug, like if you come across your friend or family member who you haven't seen in a long time, you give them a big bear hug. And then there's a cheek hug where you kind of just... Press your cheek up against somebody or maybe somebody who's disabled and can't really move their arms. But you still want to give them a hug that way. Mm. And then the side to side hug, kind of like casually strolling with somebody with your sides pressed up together. And then the heart centered hug, which I think, well, it's my favorite hug, at least. (laughs) Your, Your chests are pressed together so you can get that. Energy coming from the heart, because I know on that show we did on the heart, uh, your heart puts out an energy field. I think it was like 20 feet or so. So Mm -hmm. your heart's pressed together. You can get those emotion rays from the hearts, I suppose. Hmm. That sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Elliot. We can hear you. Oh, hey. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> I was uh, I was speaking a minute ago, but then I realized that I wasn't actually connected. <laughs> so I wonder why no one was responding to what I was saying. <laughs> uh, I was going to respond initially to, the, well, to the initial question um, about whether um, the hosts got enough hugs today. And I think that I probably have gotten enough hugs for today. Um, I probably did that this morning. But since I'm British, um, if I wasn't in a relationship, then this probably wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was um, uh, an article by Dr. Mercola. It was called uh, Hugs That Heal the Importance of Touch. And so uh, he basically cites a, a study uh, by a psychologist called Sidney Girard and um, this this psychologist set up a research study to measure um, how much friends touched each other in different countries and so um, what he found was that uh, in England within uh, I think it was over an hour's an hour period um, 
England in, in, in England, no one touched each other. The, the friends did not make any hmm. physical contact. Hmm. In, in America, they touched up to two times an hour. So that's a, a modest um, improvement. However, in France, um, they touched a hun- up to 100, 110 times per hour. And then it was topped off completely by uh, Puerto Rico, where those guys touch up to 180 times per hour. Jeez. And that's, I mean, I mean that to, to me, coming in, in my, my culture, British culture, it's kind of frowned upon to touch other people unless you're in a relationship. Mm. <laughs> yeah, um, and I just found that absolutely fascinating how, um, you know, there's probably many people in the Western world, because of our cultural, um, you know, uh, practices, we, we literally can go very long periods of time without touching any other human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting too, because like I'm from Canada and, you know, I think Canadian culture actually inherited quite a bit from British culture. And it's not a very touchy-feely type of culture either. But I find it interesting that that study um, showed that in France, people were touching uh, each other quite a bit. Because, you know, in France, I just think about the traditional French greeting is to give a a kiss on each cheek. So it's already there's like a a greater intimacy there than there is in a lot of other countries. Like you just don't, you don't do that in Canada. So it's, I I think it's like, it's it's almost like there's uh, something inherent in the culture where they're kind of more um, open um, there's an intimacy level there between friends to, to have that kind of contact, um, as opposed to, you know, maybe just, uh, like a handshake or even a wave or something like that. Or a fist bump like they do these days Yeah. or that little man <laughs> hug bump. or they'll yeah. shake hands and they'll bring their hands together and then one arm will go around the other guy and it's kind of like a halfway hug. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that one. The dude hug. And the dude hug. <laughs> In in Polynesian culture, um, the greeting is to touch foreheads and to breathe in each other's ha, their breath of life. And so a little tidbit, I may or may not have shared it in the past, when Westerners came to Hawaii and met the local people, the local people called them haoles, which everyone thinks is a derogatory term for white person. It actually means, excuse me, no breath. Because they stuck out their hand to shake their hand instead of embracing and exchanging the breath of life. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So did they do that with everybody or just close friends and family? Initially, it was with every, everybody. It was Now it's kind of fallen out of practice and it's more of a traditional practice. But kind mm-hmm. of like in uh, the the statistics about Puerto Rico and Hawaii too, people will hug you, complete strangers, and it, you see how some people are very taken back by that. It's shocking, you know, have this big man come up and hug you, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sometimes people aren't ready for that. Yeah, that is a little weird for me personally. Getting a hug from a stranger. Mm. Uh, or a hug from somebody you just met. Like people want to hug me sometimes where I work just because they think that I help them in some way. Sometimes that can be a little strange depending on the person. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually I just reserve my hugs for close friends and family, but even then it's not very frequent. It's sometimes like we'll hug around here, like in greeting, but 
where I come from, it's just like you hug if you haven't seen that person for a while, and that's it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that. So, you- Well, interesting. Sorry. Oh, go on, Doug. Well, I was just going to say in that same article that um, Elliot was just talking about, um, they quote the late Virginia Satir, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing her name right, who's a psychotherapist, um, generally acknowledged for um, a, as a pioneer in uh, family therapy. And she, just to give the, the idea of the importance of hugs, she said, we need four hugs a day for survival, we need eight hugs a day for maintenance, and we need 12 d- hugs a day for growth. How many people you think out there are getting 12 hugs a day? Maybe little kids and babies. Yeah. Or animals. <laughs> they get all the like dogs pets. and cats. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, there's been a lot of research about skin-to-skin contact with premature babies especially, but with babies, period. It helps their brains make connections. I mean, it's pretty much essential to growth that babies need to be touched almost constantly. Mm-hmm. by their parents. Yeah, I think uh, they've even done, um, or I don't know if they actually did studies. It would be a pretty sick study if it was a study, but uh, there was some uh, observation, I think, that uh, babies that kind of weren't, were deprived of touch altogether died. Yes. Like they, they just didn't, they didn't survive at all. Like babies in orphanages crowded with a bunch of kids who don't get a lot of touch. Or exactly. They've done animal studies. I remember a study where they uh, deprived the little baby monkeys of their mother's touch and gave them like a little rolled up piece of carpet to cuddle, and they just yeah. deprived it all. They eventually died. That's, yeah. yeah. In in the in the book, um, there's a book called "Touching the Human Significance of the Skin." And um, in one of the chapters, they cite um, some unpublished research which showed that um, a study of 10 infants beginning at 10 weeks of age um, whose mothers were taught to stroke their infants' backs reported that at six months of age, these infants had fewer sniffles, colds, vomiting, and diarrhea than the infants in the control group. Um, So it seems that just this fairly natural thing that we kind of take for granted um, and comes really quite naturally to a mother is is seems to have some significant effects on the child's immune system. Well, hmm. there have been, a, I don't know if you would call it research, but they put it into practice in Venezuela, I think, or they call it kangaroo care, where they had all these babies that were being born prematurely, and usually they keep the baby in an incubator and have lights on them and everything. And you can, like, reach into the incubator and touch the baby and stroke it. But they started allowing the parents to come in and actually take the baby out of the incubator and hold the baby up against their chest so the baby can feel their heartbeat and their skin is touching. And the babies actually recovered faster and they were released from the hospital faster. Hmm. But it seems like after a certain age in families, I guess it depends on the parenting style and how the parents were raised themselves, but it seems like after a certain age, especially with little boys, that uh, you get a lot of cuddles in that when you're a little toddler, a baby and toddler. Mm-hmm. And as you grow up, the touching just gradually fades away. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's too true. And I, I think that that's kind of a... 
a cultural thing. In one of the articles we were reading, it was talking about how um, it seems like the the kind of the touching gets handed off to the the girls mm-hmm. at a certain age. It's like the boys kind of no longer do it. They'll still do like the you know the rough and tumble play and that sort of thing. But but whereas you see um, young girls can be very affectionate together, and you know they'll hug or whatever. Um, boys kind of stop doing that mm-hmm. at a certain age. It's like it's not. Uh, and I, I imagine that's probably a learned uh, behavior. You know, at a certain age, probably parents uh, stop cuddling or hugging their kids, or maybe only doing it once in a while or something. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting. It's like it's like the 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 girls um, will continue with that sort of behavior, but for guys, for some reason, it's frowned upon. Well, I think a lot of that comes from puritanical ideas and maybe church indoctrin- indoctrination, mm-hmm. where any kind of touch is seen as like some gateway to sexuality. Like there can't be yeah. kind of platonic touch where you just touch somebody because you care about them. Now when people touch each other, like especially uh, when you consider men, like women are afraid to hug men because they think it's, they're going to you know, prompt the man to go into some kind of sexual realm where they shouldn't, or yeah. men don't want to hug other men because they think it's gay or men mm-hmm. don't want to play with their kids and hug their kids because they don't want any, you know, insinuation that they might be a child molester or something weird like that. So yeah. there's a lot of taboos, I guess, that's tied around touching because people automatically what? tie it to sexual activity. Yeah, even even uh, men and women. You know, mm-hmm. you don't see a lot of platonic touching between men and women. It's kind of like... Um, you know, if somebody, if, if a man and woman are showing affection by touching, it's just, you know, you assume that's a couple, right? It's not something that, you know, because, and I think it does kind of come, it, it kind of comes from this idea that men have absolutely no control over their like sexual impulses at all. So any kind of tu- uh, touch could be construed in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think there's probably good reason for that because um, I think there's probably a lot of men out there that that actually does apply to. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that other men who aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily have that intention at all, still will hold back from that kind of expression just because it can be perceived that way. Mm. You know, it's the, I don't want to appear as though I'm making some sort of advance. So I have to remain kind of closed. Well, even sometimes within a couple relationship, there's not a lot of touching unless it leads to sex. I had a boyfriend Mm. once who thought it was weird to be out in public and hold my hand. (laughs) (laughs) That's a bit extreme. strange to me. (laughs) Yeah. But again, it goes back to that upbringing. Mm -hmm. So maybe some of our co-hosts can share. I know when I was a child, I did not live in a huggy, touchy family at all. Uh, There was not a lot of uh, embrace. and, And I had two sisters. And I think... My dad never hugged us as kids. It was always very, um, you know, separated in a lot of ways. And then my sisters and I weren't very hugging or loving towards each other either because we didn't, nobody modeled that behavior for us. And, you know, when you go to church, and we kind of talked about this a little bit last week with the role model thing, you know, they, they, start the church service off with, well, now everyone give your neighbor a hug. 
And there was uh-huh. always this little bit of like, ew, that's kind of awkward, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. So I don't, I don't know. If, I'm just speaking from personal experience that, that hugging was never modeled for me in the family situation that I grew up in. So I'm not a real huggy person. Well, that whole church thing is kind of like a forced hug. You can't force that kind of thing. It has to be spontaneous. You have to want to hug that person. I would never go up to somebody and just hug them just because. <laughs> Not that I necessarily would ask for permission, but you kind of get a sense of who is huggable and who is not within mm. your circle. <laughs> you could yeah. end up with assault charges there if you're not careful. <laughs> yeah. But kind of into contrast to that, my husband's family is exactly the opposite. And his mother had five children and she hugs them all constantly and they're all very loving towards each other and when we see her all she wants to do is sit with you on the couch and hug and kiss you and (laughs) so for for me it's it's this whole new thing that it's okay to do that and just I love you I love you and hug 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 and and she'll cry and she's just so emotional and it's this feeling that you get from her that she genuinely just wants to connect with you Mm -hmm. on a deep Mm -hmm. level Yeah, um, I had a similar experience, Erica, and I think it probably is like an intergenerational thing, you know, Um, so, you know, if the the parents often, maybe they don't experience the touch, they don't have that affection, and they they naturally, you're not, yeah, they're not, not equipped with the tools to be able to provide that to your child, unless you consciously sort of work through that, and so... Um, yeah, in, in, I had a similar kind of thing, and uh, I kind of feel uncomfortable um, uh, hugging people who I'm not really close to. But I think that's, you know, it's it's kind of sad <laughs> because yeah. it stops me from being able to it stops someone from being able to, you know, connect with people on a deeper level. And I think that, you know, there there are things that someone can do to to overcome that. It's just It is unfortunate, and I can relate to that as well. Yeah, my family wasn't particularly huggy. Um, I mean, I think there was hugs given out on occasion, like, you know, to comfort the child if they hurt themselves or something like that. But I don't think, I mean, it wasn't kind of a common all-the-time practice. And yeah, you know, sometimes I am in situations where it's like, you know, people... Um, a group is kind of meeting or something and they, um, they start hugging each other and it's like, Oh, okay, we're doing hugs. Um, <laughs> all right, I guess, I guess I'm hugging. And you know, it's not that big a deal or anything like that, but it's just kind of like, there is that kind of hesitation there in myself where it's kind of like, uh, Oh, okay. I guess we're doing hugs. Yeah. I didn't come from a huggy family either. I remember when I was around nine years old, I used to trick my mother <laughs> into touching me. I used to act like my back was hurting, so I'd make her rub something on my back just to get some touch. Well, I can relate to that as a parent. When my youngest was young, I had to lay down with her every night to go to sleep because she was afraid of the dark. And she'd say, rub my belly, rub my belly. And so I'd rub her belly and then I'd stop and she would take my hand and <laughs> rub her belly, you know, because <laughs> she's asleep because I always fall asleep with her every night. And, and so it, I, I think that my kids taught me how to be more that way, even though I didn't know how to, how to be that way. Mm-hmm. 
as a child when, when I had children of my own. And I did read a lot about, you, you were talking about the importance of touch when babies are little. Like uh, in Indonesia, the first year of life, a baby is never put on the ground. It's constantly <clears throat> passed around and, and it never touches the ground. It's constantly embraced and it's constantly hugged. And it's building that support, mm-hmm. that foundation where the child grows up feeling secure mm-hmm. and loved. Mm-hmm. But just the physical touch. Yeah, just physical contact with people, not necessarily being embraced all the time, but like sitting on the couch close to somebody and you don't have that, you know, space that you have to have between yourselves and Western. (laughs) You're actually, your legs are touching or your shoulders are touching or some part of your body's in contact with somebody else. And there's there's like, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, th- I think about movie theaters where it's kind of like as soon as, you know, the theater's filling up and suddenly you realize that somebody's inevitably going to be sitting next to you and you're like, oh, man. <laughs> so you've got that little armrest thing that's kind of like this natural barrier there. So it's kind of like it's not too bad, but it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I totally agree with that, by the way. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was just going to say that there's there's like a, an innate sort of, um, you know, this innate drive to 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 get this physical contact with others, you know, and and, and it's it's sort of like children are born with this, but then as 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 we've already said, it's gradually sort of um, taken away from them in in, in the cultural whatever. And um, I, I see this in my school because I work in a school, and um, and I see the children that I work with there between five and seven years old. And it, interestingly, it's a special needs school, so it, it operates quite a bit differently from a, a mainstream school. And so it, it, at our school, it's it's, a, it's something that's promoted. You know, this idea of touching your friends and hugging and sitting on laps and, you know, all of the things that children want to do when they're young. And um, in mainstream school, my experience of that was the opposite. You know, if if there were it was almost like I felt um, how can I say it? (laughs) It's basically that it's not fostered in mainstream education. The, the, mm. the, the whole system, it's, it's almost like it's indoctrinated out of children. When they get to a certain age, they learn that you are separate from everyone else and you should sort of um, stick to this way, if that makes any sense. Sorry, I've lost my track yeah. of thought. No, no, I, no, I made I sense. Yeah. you on that because when I started teaching school and I worked with that same age, we would always hug the kids and they just naturally, they come hug your leg and hold on to you and and there, for the most part, I'd say most of the kids were that way. You always had the one that was very standoffish, and it was encouraged. Mm-hmm. You know, it was never looked at mm-hmm. as weird or creepy or anything. And just in the last, I'd say, 10 or 15 years, there's actually rules in school now that, uh, at least in the school that I worked with, that you could not do that anymore, mm-hmm. that you had mm-hmm. to, you know, not encourage that, which just seems to me so. You know, I understand in a sense because of all the weird sexual abuse things and things like that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, you really miss out on bonding with those children because they're going to learn better Mm -hmm. if they feel like they're in a safe space with a nurturer that's providing them with not only learning 
your ABCs or whatever, but touching each other and, and especially when they're yeah. crying or they need to mm-hmm. be consoled. Yeah, I remember when I was in the fourth grade, we had a teacher, and I forget her name. This was back in the 80s, though. But whenever we would go from our classroom somewhere else in the building, we would have to line up. And everybody wanted to be in the front because whoever was in the front, the teacher would hold their hands as they're walking down the hallway. And everybody Mm. wanted to be in the front all the time. (laughs) But now there's certain schools that have, like, no hugging policies. Like, the kids can't hug each other. Two girlfriends can't hug each other. And so now, you know. You're forced to like, like uh, just roughhouse or do some kind of play with somebody. You can't hold their hand or touch them or stroke their hair or anything like that. Well, and teasing becomes the the mode of... Yeah, showing that you like somebody. Yeah. You have to tease them. Mm. Hmm. It, it's, it, you know, it, it really seems to be very connected with trust as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about like how everybody kind of has this natural like personal space, right? And apparently they've done studies and found that different cultures have different allowable like allowance for people in their space. You know, a friend of mine uh, traveled to India and was telling me about how there, the idea of having personal space is almost, it's almost not even a thing. Like, you know, people standing in lineups are basically like touching each other and like, will even like lean on each other. Like these are strangers in a line for like a bank or something like that. And they'll be just leaning on each other because they're tired. Mm. And and (laughs) these are people who've never met before. Whereas opposed to like, (laughs) Someplace like where I grew up in Canada, it's like there, there's a, a much greater distance that is kind of a comfortable space that someone is allowed in before that a person will feel uncomfortable, like if there's a stranger in your space. So, you know, on public transit or something like that where you're kind of squeezed in, it's like it's an uncomfortable experience, even though you're not necessarily like physically uncomfortable in any way, just being in that close proximity. Mm-hmm. And I think that like it, it really is tied a lot to trust and how much you kind of trust other people in general, whether they be strangers or friends or whatever, you know, it's, it's like, you know, if, if somebody is, is kind of in, within that comfortable space and they're not somebody that you necessarily know or somebody that you're comfortable with, it really comes down to, I don't trust this person being this close to me. Mm-hmm. And I know uh, for a lot of people, um, particularly having somebody behind you is quite uncomfortable. Um, because it, I, I guess it's because you don't, you, you can't see them. So you don't, uh, you don't know what they're up to. So it's like, it's, it's, it, there's kind of, and I, I, w- I also wonder, sorry, I'm going on a bit here, but I under, also wonder if this kind of discouraging of touch and hugs is actually fostering a distrust. That it's not necessarily that, you know, this culture doesn't really trust each other, so they don't, um, they, they don't allow for a lot of people in their space. It's more like the opposite. It's like, um, because that kind of thing is discouraged, people tend to trust each other less. Yeah, I think that's true. What's interesting about that is that when you um, touch another person, skin-to-skin contact, um, oh, in fact, I think it's even between clothes. You can touch them on their clothes. And uh, you do actually get a significant increase in the hormone called oxytocin. So oxytocin mm-hmm. is a hormone which is uh, commonly understood to be the love hormone that bonds a mother and their child. And so, uh, on what you were saying, Doug, it would, you know, it makes perfect sense. If, if you are in a situation where you are touching someone else, then you are naturally going to um, be producing those hormones which facilitate that bond between the two mm. people. 
and therefore increase the feeling of safety and trust and um, an overall sort of well-being. Mm -hmm. Well, there have been some observations that uh, even amongst strangers, like in restaurants, if the waiter or the waitress touches the people at the table, she'll, she'll get a bigger tip. People are more likely to return money they found on the street if someone has touched them before. People are more <laughs> likely to help other people. Um, it's easier to sell cars if the salesperson touches you <laughs> while he's trying to sell the car. <laughs> and people yeah. who were about to take a math test scored higher on the math test if they were given some touch beforehand. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's a, you know, I think, I think it can go both ways because I mean, I, I, there certainly are people out there who are not comfortable at all with being touched. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that car salesman would find himself in a, in a bad situation if he tried to pull that on, on, on just everybody who walked through the door. I mean, I think we get a kind of a, an idea of this, like you kind of have, like you were saying before, Tiffany, you kind of have a sense of who, who who is comfortable with that sort of thing and who isn't? Mm -hmm. um, if somebody seems very close and their body language is saying, you know, kind of leave me alone, then obviously you're not going to like touch them because you want to get a bigger tip, or maybe you would. I don't know, but I don't think it would work. But also, when people just put their hand on your shoulder yeah. as a con like a consoling gesture, or mm -hmm. um, in a work environment, like one of our chatters was talking about. It's funny because I work in a spa where they do massages and I work at the desk and throughout the day, the massage therapist will come up to you and they'll ask you a question and they'll start massaging you on your back. And, and mm. for me, because again, I shared, I'm not a super touchy person. At first I was like, okay, this is kind of weird. <laughs> now I wait for them to come out because mm -hmm. they're going to spend five minutes massaging me as they ask me a question about their next client. And it's, it's actually created this harmonious environment where we all work together and get done what needs to get done in the day. Well, I have a similar experience with a chiropractor that I know when I first met him, like he gave me this hug. I'm like, dude, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you hugging me like that? And I noticed that he hugged everybody and I was like, oh, wait a minute. He is a chiropractor. <laughs> so he just goes around hugging people all the time. And then the more he does it, the more you start smiling like, okay, yeah, I'll hug you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I've known some huggy people in my past too. You know, people who, and at first it is kind of off. Actually, oddly enough, one of the people who I knew who was quite huggy was, uh, was a massage therapist. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I mean, maybe they're just kind of more primed to touch and, uh, and I mean, you know, a lot of the articles we looked at actually said that a lot can be communicated in touch. Like even some studies even looked at it and said that more could be communicated by touch than by words. Uh, there was one study in particular where um, they had the people in a situation where they couldn't see the other persons and they would like, I don't know, stick their arm through a hole or something like that. And the person would touch them and try to communicate a specific feeling. And apparently the, I don't remember the exact figures, but it was like up to 83% or something like that was successfully communicated. Like they couldn't even see the person's face. Mm -hmm. And apparently those figures are very close to situations where a person can see the other person's face. So the idea, like, you know, the idea of touch being able to actually communicate 
you know, it, make, it makes you really realize how deprived we are by not, by being in these cultures that don't kind of embrace touching, you know, the, the idea that you could actually communicate a, a specific feeling just through touch. Well, it's funny that you bring that up because uh, we've been doing Reiki and uh, I got Reiki one night. It was the night before I uh, had to have my cat euthanized. So I was thinking about him a lot that night and I wasn't you know, telling anybody that, but I got Reiki and two of the people who gave me the Reiki said that they felt like they wanted to cry or they felt like an intense feeling of sadness while they were given mm. Reiki. So, yeah, I think you can communicate a lot of feelings with touch and you don't even have to say anything. Yeah. And oh, that's really sad. crosses yeah. language barriers, too. That, mm. that uh, you know, there's this unspoken, like this woman, Ama, that hugs these millions of people. You know, she knew as a child that that she would console people who were weeping and crying and, and just give them a hug. And that was it. And then another person and then another person. Mm-hmm. And she realized that in her lifetime, this was her purpose to just do that. And, and she doesn't necessarily get anything out of it, but she just shares that connection with, with people that they, they don't speak the same language. They're not from the same culture or anything. Well, she probably gets something out of it on a physical level that she's probably not even aware of because hugging has been shown to boost the immune system. It reduces cortisol, increases uh, oxytocin and dopamine, and it can actually lower your heart rate and your blood Mm -hmm. pressure just by touching somebody. Probably Hmm. the more you touch or the longer you touch, at least 10 seconds or 20 seconds, the more benefit that you get from it, which makes it all the more sad that more people aren't being touched on a regular basis, like people in a nursing home, like they have to bring dogs or cats in like once a week or something for some kind of pet therapy. Or mm. really, you know, the staff could be touching people. I'm sure they do. I know I touch my patients and my work, but touching them more than just, you know, okay, it's time for your bath. You know, touching mm-hmm. them just when you're sitting there talking to them is important too. Mm-hmm. Or they can touch each other. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that is discouraged at all. You know, why why not have you know the residents actually? I don't know. I guess maybe it comes back to that cultural thing, like the residents just kind of stay in their own space and don't really touch yeah, each other. Well, or anything, a lot of but... it has to do with immobility. You know, some are yeah, confined right. to beds, some are in wheelchairs. Like there are certain activities where you can get people together and, you know, provide an opportunity for them to touch each other. But for the people who can't get up and move, they need people to come in there, like real people, yeah. not just dogs and cats. I mean, that's good too, but you need touching from animals and people. Well, yeah. in the in the sort of social social care sector, or, you know, the way it's going in the UK, um, they actually are now discouraging um, employees to uh, make physical contact with um, the people who, who who are in the care. So it's yeah, it's it's. Um, I remember going to some training about it a couple of years ago, and the it, apparently it. it it bypasses professional boundaries and mm-hmm. it's important to keep those boundaries um mm-hmm. and even even when the the um 
the support worker sees it necessary or sees it as appropriate, they're still discouraged from doing that. And I found that something really hard because I used to work with adults with learning disabilities and, um, and quite often they would come over to you for, your, for a hug, um, especially the ones with Down syndrome. Yeah. Mm. Um, they, they're, yeah, they're kind of renowned for that. And it, it seems like those sort of barriers don't really exist so much uh, f- mm-hmm. and that's just in my experience of the ones I've worked with and so it's it's difficult when you're in a situation and, and when you start to dig into you know you start to understand some of the physiological benefits and the psychological benefits of touch and you're in that situation where you're you're almost you don't have a choice you, you can't do it or else you risk losing your job um, and it's really sad to see because it it's kind of like taking taking the humane aspect out of the type of work that you're doing and, and rendering it to mm. simply like a business, a service, you know, and it's 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 sad. Yeah. Well, it's more than just the service. It's connection between two human beings, and I know they're trying to cover their asses. I could avoid lawsuits because there have been incidences where care workers have sexually abused people in their care. And so it's a case of, you know, a couple bad apples just ruining the whole bunch for everybody else and they're mm-hmm. taking that away and really there's a a benefit to it and it shouldn't be taken away just because a few people you know go out of bounds with it mm. well i wonder how the health overall especially in countries like the u.s and the uk would be better if this small idea was actually practiced mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the rate of illness that we have in the United States. And if there was that component, that connection, like I think it, it's been the term is what psycho immunology. Psycho neuroimmunology. Thank you. <laughs> but this idea that your physical health is directly related to your mental health and your emotional health and, um, mm-hmm. You know, like you were saying, Tiffany, just just touching people in a hospital setting or holding their hand or or even premature babies. I mean, their survival rate is exponential if the mother comes in and actually holds them skin to skin every day as opposed to leaving them in an incubator and hoping that the medical miracle will save this child's life. It's not going to happen that way. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, one of the chatters brought up that they are bringing in complementary therapies like massage and Reiki, and they are doing that, especially in hospices. I know when I worked for hospice, they had uh, massage therapists that went around. But again, it's still pretty sad. The people have to resort to professionals, people that have to pay to touch them. Yeah. I mean, it's all well yeah. good. I mean, a good massage is really worth every penny. <laughs> yeah. But you wonder if that that need would be met better in the home by family members. Well, there's cases even of, of people who are just so craving human touch that they'll, like, you know, make up ailments and go to the doctor's office mm-hmm. just so they can be examined and actually come into contact with somebody, which is really sad. Yeah. Like, the, you know, have we really come to this? You know, like people, you know, th- there's also you know, the idea that, you know, there are these kind of services where you can go and it's kind of like a a hug service or like a cuddle room or something like that where 
people can go and kind of have these, you know, go in your lunch hour and, and, and cuddle with somebody in a platonic way, you know, to pay for a service. Like it's, it's so sad when you think about it mm-hmm. that people have to kind of resort to these, uh, these things. Well, we had a interesting uh, article on SOT under Don't Panic, Lighten Up, and this was back in 2007, and I'll put the link in the in the notes here in a minute. But it's it's about this man in Sydney who he was called the free hugs guy, and uh, mm. he, um, he used to go out with a sign in a mall in Sydney, and it said free hugs. And it was interesting how he came about doing this. He said he was kind of having this struggle in his life. He was alone. He didn't have any family or friends. And so he uh, he figured he'd, he'd get it. He'd go out and just experiment with it. And he said, um, it was funny, in high school, they had said that they never, his teachers said that he wasn't going to be the humanitarian type, right? So he, he would go out and he, he said the first time he, he waited about 15 minutes, and then a woman came up to him and said, oh, my dog just died, and it's the same day as my daughter died, and he gave her a oh. hug, and all of a sudden, he became popular, and uh, it, it went viral on YouTube, and it was viewed almost 14 million times, and and then now, and, and his name was One Man, that's the name he gave himself, <laughs> uh, One Man. Yeah. And... Uh, <laughs> He said, uh, basically, he realized that he could do this service and that it was like a humanitarian thing. And, and mm. um, you know, again, this happened several years ago, but I just found the article interesting because he, he said that his junk food emotion fills a need in people um, that they just need someone to listen to them instead of calling a helpline or seeking professional help. Mm-hmm. Just those few moments of interaction gave them exactly what they needed from this free hug guy. And at one point, um, Sydney tried to ban him, saying it was yeah. like a, a violation of safety laws and all these things. <laughs> <laughs> and he got over 10,000 people signed a petition to keep him there giving free hugs. So there's yeah. a need. One man yeah. saves the world. <laughs> <laughs> I watched another video actually where there was a guy who was doing a social experiment and he was, you know, just kind of out in the park and people passing by, he asked if, you know, they could give a hug kind of thing and stuff. And they would give, they would give kind of a, a hug, you know, like Tiff was talking about before, kind of like butts out. So it's like, you know, we're not <laughs> connecting too much, like just, you know, and then he'd be like, okay, so how was that? And they're like, yeah, you know, it was okay. It was fine. And he's like, okay, now I want you to give me like a real hug, like a, like a real, like put, put what you've got into it, put something into this hug. So then they would give them a hug and it was like a, kind of like a bear hug or like people really kind of, you know, a really good, decent hug for, um, you know, a few seconds, like not just like a brief kind of tap and then separate. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, well, how was that? And then people were kind of like, oh, yeah, that felt really good. You know, that was really, um, that, that, you know, that actually felt like something there. It felt like there was like an emotional connection and that kind of thing. So, I mean, it was hardly like a placebo controlled study or anything like that, but it was interesting to see <laughs> the difference between like, you know, so there is kind of like, I don't know if you'd call it a fake hug, but like a. I would. <laughs> okay. There you go. It's a fake hug. It's basically like <laughs> your shoulders or the top part of your body touching, nothing else. Yeah. 
<laughs> and maybe a couple pats on the back and then, okay, move back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then there's, there's kind of a more sincere hug, I guess, mm-hmm. where it's kind of like you're actually putting something into it. And I mean, <clears throat> those, those kinds of hugs do tend to feel good because, I mean, you know, it's releasing dopamine and serotonin and endorphins and that sort of thing. Like there actually is a re, a very real physiological response there. So it, it kind of makes sense that kind of, when you actually connect on that level, it's like, oh, wow, that actually felt good. Mm-hmm. On the uh, on on the topic of the physiology behind it, um, aside from the, I mean, because because a lot of the benefits are supposedly due to um, its effect on the nervous system. So it releases certain chemicals and neurotransmitters and stuff, and this feels really good. Um, but from what I understand, it actually goes quite a lot deeper than that. And this, it, it can kind of help to explain why um, body work modalities like massage and osteopo- osteoporoth- sorry, osteo- osteopathy, osteopathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, os- osteopathy, uh, chiropractic, all of these things can have such amazing effects. Um, and it actually comes down to a very sort of basic substance that makes up your body. And in textbooks, if you look at diagrams of of, of the human body, the this substance will it's completely negated, it's neglected, it's thrown away as if it doesn't really do anything. And that's collagen. Um, the, the connective tissue that basically connects every fabric of the body together. And it, it, it's like um, you know, it's it's the most abundant protein in the body. And the, this connective tissue has some amazing properties. It's um it's electrically conductive. So Essentially, what what happens is when someone touches you, touches your skin, um, it doesn't have to be too deep, just like a hug. Essentially, what that does is it creates something called a piezoelectric current. So piezoelectricity is basically mechanical pressure, so pushing something in, um, producing a charge, a local charge. And, And so... When, when you consider that this fascial network that connects every single aspect of the body to each bit, um, when you apply this, this, this pressure to that system, you are producing this electric current. And, and mm. this, um, you know, this has been theorized. I mean, there was a guy called Dr. Robert Becker. He spoke a lot about this. He, found, he was one of the first people to find that collagen had this semi- semiconducting property. But um, there are there are quite a few researchers coming out now that are saying that this is actually one of, or theorizing that this is one of the the main sort of control systems of the body. So you've got different layers. You've got like the nervous system, and you've got all of these things that m- medicine studies. But then you've got this underlying, more primitive sort of um, electrical system, and and this this essentially operates via the the, the fascia, the connective tissue. And so, you know, say if someone's got some uh, illness, they've got, I I don't know, I can't think, say they've broken their leg or something, and they go for a massage, and they think it feels really good, and it actually really helps them. That's not just psychological. Like, mainstream medicine will say, oh, okay, massage might make you feel good, it might reduce stress, and therefore that's how it works. But what they what they really neglect is this whole electrical na- nature to the human body, and that by uh, you know just simply placing your hands on someone else's body, you are essentially um, increasing um, this this the, the 
how can you say it, the, the efficiency of, of, of this electrical system almost. Mm-hmm. I think it's a lot more complex than that, but it would take a lot a lot of time to go through all the evidence and stuff. But yeah, I'm just, just saying that because it seems that there are many layers to, to, to why touch is so clearly so beneficial for the body. Hmm. I was reading in our notes somewhere about these tiny egg shaped pressure centers called Piscean corpuscles. Piscean corpuscles. (laughs) We'll just call them PCs. (laughs) <laughs> they can basically sense touch and they're in constant contact with the brain through the vagus nerve. Mm-hmm. Mm. So if you are touch deprived or touch blind, there's also the opposite effect. Like maybe those nerve connections aren't as deep and you are experiencing deficits, but you can't really put your finger on what is wrong yeah. because so those connections aren't made. Yes. Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> but that makes sense why um, once a person does get, say, one massage or therapeutic touch or a Reiki treatment or any of these considered, quote, unquote, alternative therapies, that most of them go back mm-hmm. for it. Mm. That, that yeah. it's, it's, it's almost like you have to, especially if you weren't raised or don't aren't used to it, that initial touch stimulates something and you want more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's the extreme form of this called tactile emotional synesthesia. Like people mm. can feel emotions just by touching certain objects. Like there was one woman they talked about in an article, she would touch denim and would make her nauseous and make her want to throw up. Or she would touch silk and it would make her feel really good. Or just just different types of objects she would touch would create these emotions in her. And they theorized that certain parts of the brain, certain connections hadn't been pruned like they usually are as you're growing up and developing. So those connections are really hardwired in those people. And for some reason, they can feel all these emotions just by touching things. Yeah. I think that would happen in people that are blind too. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the whole synesthesia thing is very interesting. I mean, there's the people out there who can kind of hear colors or have a color associated with a number or all numbers. Um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. I mean, th- there's also the hypersensitivity too. I, I used to know a girl actually who she was an artist, but she was really hypersensitive to color. And like certain colors together, if it was kind of like a bad combination, like the, like a clashing color combination would actually like cause her pain. Hmm. I'd be yeah. interested to know how that, how that sort of uh, relates to color therapy. Because, you know, mm. like there's lots of people who talk about using different colors because it's essentially just electromagnetic energy. Yeah. And it's 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 deciphered by the body and it's seen as a color. But perhaps the information that each color um, carries with it is is somehow maybe there's some defect in the in the sort of um, translation system or whatever. And um, and perhaps it actually has that very sort of physical effect. Mm. Yeah. Well, apparently there is some, um, like, what's the word I'm looking for? There's there's similarities across people who have this can these conditions. Mm-hmm. 
like people who um, are, have a color associated with a number, apparently like the colors will be the same for everybody. Like apparently everybody sees the number four as orange. So I don't know if there's some kind of um, objective thing there. Like maybe these th- these guys are just sensing something that we can't sense for some reason. Mm-hmm. But then the person who touches denim and, denim and feels nauseous, I don't know, that one doesn't really make much sense. <laughs> That's like cutting out like 90% of the average person's wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I couldn't wear jeans anymore, I'd, I'd pro- I wouldn't have any pants left. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Interesting thing. The Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami School of Medicine um, says they've carried out about a a hundred different studies on touch alone. And they said that they had significant effects in many of these studies, including faster growth in premature babies, reduced pain, decreased autoimmune disease symptoms, lowered glucose levels in children with diabetes, and improved immune systems in people with cancer. There's actually quite a bit of interesting um, research out there on people who are undergoing kind of conventional treatment for cancer, um, who are also getting uh, some kind of you know touch therapy or, or something along those lines. And apparently it can help to uh, lower the uh, side effects from the, the chemo or the radiation or whatever they happen to be undergoing. Um, to a significant degree. Well, there was also some research done on stroke victims. Um, mm. If they're touched regularly or stroked regularly, they can regain sense sensation in their arm or leg that's been affected by the stroke. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, dare I say, there's a side to that when certain people touch you, it creeps you out and you get yeah. you yeah. up bad energy. Yes. Yeah. Anyone have I think um, with that? <laughs> usually it doesn't even get to the point where they have to touch me. You can just sense the creepiness just oozing off of them before it even gets there. <laughs> and you don't want them to touch you. Those are the people like, oh, stay away from me. <laughs> yeah. I've had that with a couple people. Is it were were they men in both situations? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cuz oh, okay. That's interesting cuz I cuz my immediate thought was that maybe like, you know, it's kind of like ulterior motives kind of thing or or something along yeah, those lines. I, like I consider maybe... that something different. You know when someone's trying to perv out on you. <laughs> 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 no, this is just an entirely different sensation. It's just like a a feeling of disgust or yuck and like I don't want to be anywhere near you. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I've had the opposite experience. Actually, that same massage therapist I was talking about before, um, one time uh, I, I just met her on the street and she, I don't, I don't remember, she was explaining something or something like that and she took took my hand to show me. Maybe she was talking about a massage technique or something like that. And it's kind of like as soon as she kind of touched my hand, there was some kind of like, I don't even know what it was. It was almost like an electric spark or something, but there was no pain involved or anything like that. It was just kind of like a zzz kind of uh-huh. thing. And and I I noticed it, and then she was like, oh, hmm, hello. And like, so she obviously noticed it as well. But um, wow. anyway, yeah. So it's kind of, kind of, that was kind of a weird thing as well. 
Yeah, and there are those rare occasions where there's somebody who's just like, oh, yeah, I want to hug you. They're not just little babies that are so cute, or puppies, or kittens, or something. They're like you just want to squeeze them. Yeah. Other people just exude such warmth that when they hug you, it's like, oh, that was just fantastic. Yeah. 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 It's funny though, like going back to the kind of creep out factor, it's that whole, the whole thing about having somebody in your space too. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, you, you brought up earlier, Tiff, the whole thing about the heart as actually kind of being a sensory organ and that it has this field and things within its field it can kind of detect in a way. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there is, like if somebody has just given off bad vibes in general and they come within that field that you're able to kind of sense that. I think it's very plausible for sure. Well, we did that show. We did that show on it a while back, didn't we? And yeah, we did. Some of that, it, like research, was absolutely fascinating. In that, like the whole mm. idea of our personal space is actually our electromagnetic field, mm-hmm. and how when someone enters that, maybe there's some kind of um, like uh, assessment that goes on on some level. It's certainly not necessarily conscious, but maybe there's some like assessment of the energy that they're like giving off. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether that's electromagnetically or maybe it's even something completely different, but it yeah. seems that there's definitely, there's, there's, there's always a physical component to it. You know, I, I know, I noticed that anyway, it actually feels, um, as if something's going on in my system, something has entered or, or in some way, um, it's not just psychological, you know? Mm. I agree. It's almost, it's almost like. I hate to sound cliche, but Bob Marley has a line in his song that says, who feels it knows it. And and mm. I always think about that because, you know, you're in a strange situation. Say you're lost and you're looking for directions or you need something. And I personally will scan the environment and almost see, oh, no, I'm not going to ask that person. Oh, mm-hmm. maybe I'll ask that person. And yeah. it, it, it's, it's almost like it becomes like a honing instrument and without mm. even the physical touch, just the energetic exchange. And maybe that mm. comes from being a parent too. Like when you're in a public place and there's just, you get the feeling from the bad person. It doesn't have to be a man or a woman necessarily, but I think I'm just going to steer clear of those people and keep my kids away mm. from those people mm-hmm. too, you know? So it's almost like, a, I think, like a survival mechanism that, I hate to sound cheesy, but we've lost touch with. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. Well, if you consider that the skin is your body's largest organ, and it's pretty much, you know, this meat sack that we're walking around in, and it's our primary interface with the world outside of us. It separates our inner world from the outer world. And there's got to be some kind of cosmic something, spiritual, whatever that interacts with that in some kind of way that I can't even put words to, but yeah, I get what I'm saying. I get what you're saying. I feel it. I feel it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you mean that the skin like can detect like cosmic, like radiation or something like that? Yeah. Why not? (laughs) <laughs> sure. Or like, yeah. I, like, like uh, Carlos Castaneda talks about the luminous cocoon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes when I picture people just, you know, having this conversation, I just picture these waves of energy coming off of people. And that energy can be good or it can be bad or neutral or whatever. But 
I picture everyone as having something coming off of them. Hmm. Well, sometimes they, that's where the fake huggy huggy thing comes in because mm-hmm. really you you pick that up and then that person wants to hug you or there's that social responsibility to hug mm-hmm. and you're kind of creeped out by it. Mm. What what you're just talking about about the the sort of the field or the light or whatever that's emitted from the the people's bodies well Mm -hmm. there's there's quite a lot of research to say that that is actually you know uh, an objective fact um in that there are things called biophotons um they are released from various different parts of the cells mainly the nucleus so the the bit that holds all of the genes uh it's also released when you metabolize food uh, when you produce energy. So you, you actually are releasing all of the time, I think it's like 10,000 times per second, you're releasing UV light, and you're also releasing visible light, and you're also releasing infrared light, and everything in between. And so there's a, there's, there was a really good paper that I was reading for this show, and it was talking about um, regression therapy, but I think it also applies to touch therapy as well. In that, um, when two people are uh, communicating in some way, um, there is a, a distinct release of um, light, and that light is sensed by the other person. And I would imagine that since the skin is absorbent to light, that there is some sort of energy transfer there. Um, it's been shown that um, if like for instance, a Reiki practitioner or some alternative healing practitioner, by directing their intention, um, they can send light to someone across the room. Mm-hmm. And that has direct physiological effects on the person across the room. And, and this is kind of sounds a bit woo-woo because it can't really be um, explained. <laughs> mm. And, you know, the scientific establishment would call it, you know, nonsense. But nonetheless, um, there seems to be something to do with light in this. I don't really know if anyone truly understands it. But um, hmm. like, what you, it, the reason that it made me think of this, Tiff, is because you just said that you imagine people with like a ball of light around them or something. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is the case. And I also think that when you touch someone, there is a transfer of light. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's there's so much evidence to say that that is what happens that it's. It kind of sounds a bit crazy, but, you know, it's it's backed up by a lot of research. Hmm. So they've actually done studies where they've seen, like, the effects of this light transfer kind of thing across the room? Yeah, I, I, I'll have to... I've, I've got a book on it upstairs, and there's loads of research on it. That if anyone's interested, ah. um, one of the main researchers is called Fritz Albert Pop. So he um, ah. was the guy who basically discovered biophotons. The fact that uh, biological systems release light. Um, he theorizes that it's it's to communicate um, information across the body, across all spans. So, for instance, how um, because we were talking about collagen earlier, and collagen is not only electrically con- conductive, but it's also light conductive. Hmm. And people, uh, some scientists learn this and they thought you know well why why would collagen conduct light and then you've got you put this together with fritz fritz pop's work and everyone who's sort of come after him and their idea is that light um is released from the cells containing certain information 
and that can then be uh, essentially passed on to other other parts of the body or to other people um, to communicate that information. Um, and so there, there, there is research on the effects of like intention and meditation and how that affects the light transfer from one person to another person. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I haven't looked at this research for a long time, so I can't say any specific studies. I can put it on the forum um, that there's, there's a lot of information out there, but I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. So what can we do to get more touch in our lives? Because, <laughs> I mean, we can have Reiki circles where we do Reiki exchanges. We can pay for massages. What else? Try and become a more huggy person. Yeah. Be the hug that you want to be in the world. <laughs> <laughs> be the hug you want to see in the world. <laughs> It's uh, it's a tricky question. Because um, a lot yeah, of emotional hurdles that you have to overcome, your own discomfort or inhibition or whatever, just to reach out and put your hand on somebody. Yeah. Because maybe in the back of your mind you're thinking, oh, do they want me to touch them? Are they going to think that I'm weird? Or Yeah. I mean, you can start off slow, maybe. Go with people you know and who would be cool with hugs, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And then get to the point where you're like that chiropractor somebody in our chat room uh, recommended hugging trees yeah I was just going to comment on that because um, I do that often <laughs> and, and the reason I do it is because we've talked about grounding before in the show and being mm-hmm. outside and, and I find um, I get overstimulated by being around a lot of people, uh, you know, in your job or in a social environment. And that uh, hugging a tree helps ground me in a sense. Mm. And, and my mm. spirit's out now. So, But I tell people <laughs> at work after a very intense day that if you see me out in the, the forest hugging a tree, it's just because I, I need a little, <laughs> little grounding. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit it anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But but uh, I, I don't know. I, it's calming, you know. And I know now that I need to hug other people more, and mm-hmm. not just trees. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, who are we to sort of differentiate between human beings and trees? In the sense that <laughs> you know they are still living, and maybe like yeah, okay, we can't have a conversation with a tree, or you could have a conversation with a tree, but it wouldn't be a very interesting conversation. But <laughs> you, for yourself, how do you know? <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how do you know that when you hug a tree that that tree is not also providing some of the things that a human being would provide you with mm-hmm. and there is that energy mm-hmm. transfer again because it, again you know that we share a lot in common with trees when you look at you know basic biology and uh, I guess from a more sort of philosophical perspective you know you could say that every single thing on this in this existence is alive so um, maybe there is some sort of energy transfer, you know? Well, it looks like we have a caller. Caller, you're on the line. Hi, how's it going, guys? Can you hear me? Yeah. What's hey, your name, guys. caller? Uh, Brent, I'm from New York. Brent, why do you sound like, like a chipmunk? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, am I stuttering? No, no your <laughs> voice just sounds really chipmunk-esque. 
but yeah, share. Maybe it's the go headset. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I was I heard when Erica was talking about um, how she kind of gets sort of a, an intuit, intuitive feeling about people, like sort of instantly. I've been reading um, Shulchanitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, and there's a passage in here where he describes that kind of very same thing. So he's locked up basically in, in a gulag, in a prison, um, and he says that, uh, but although I felt open-hearted towards my new friends, and although not many words had been exchanged in a few minutes since I joined them, I sent something alien in this frontline soldier who was, who was my contemporary, and as far as I was concerned, clammed up immediately and forever. I had not heard the word uh, stool pigeon, nor had I learned that there had to be such one stool pigeon in each cell. And yet I had not yet time to think things over and conclude that I did not like this fellow, Georgi Karaminko. But a spiritual relay, a sensor relay, had clicked inside me. It had closed them off to me for good and all. I would not bother to recall this event if it had not been only one of its kind. But soon, with astonishment and alarm, I became aware of the work of this internal sensor relay as a constant inborn trait. The years passed, and I lay on the same bunks, marched in the same formations, and worked in the same work brigades with hundreds of others. And always that secret sensor relay, for whose creation I deserved not the least bit of credit, worked even before I remembered it was there, worked at the very first sight of a human face and eyes, at the first sound of a voice, so that I opened my heart to that person either fully, or just the width of a crack, or else shut myself off from him completely." This was so consistently unfailing that all efforts of the state security officers to employ stool pigeons began to seem to me as insignificant as being pestered by gnats. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I thought that was an interesting point that you brought it up and I had just read it. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I think people lose that kind of gut feeling or intuition or sensory ability. Just over time with all the you know, social indoctrination and maybe being in that kind of situation when you're in a camp and you pretty much don't have anything to rely on but your own self and your own cunning and intellect and intuition, those things probably get strengthened after a while. Yeah, and Solzhenitsyn seems to be a pretty smart guy. He was very well read. I mean, he has his failings as anyone else does, but... Um, it just, he, he had this sort of immediate visceral internal sense of, you know, whether he could, you know, open up fully to someone and divide all of his, you know, all of his secrets or, you know, just, you know, let them in a little bit or whether or not that person was not to be trusted whatsoever. And I think oftentimes, uh, you know, in modern society, especially we're all running be nice programs and mm -hmm. if we get a certain internal visceral reaction where we just immediately and without explanation don't like someone and we can't really figure out why we tend to disregard that feeling when in fact it's sort of there as like a evolutionary leftover mm. it's something we should you know take very seriously yeah that's why i don't like it like in your you're in a family situation or something or you take your child to somebody's house and you force them to give that person a hug you're like completely disregarding his or her feeling about who they want to touch them or not. And I think that's a big way in which we lose that sense of who we can trust and who we can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, but that's all I wanted to share. Thank right. you. Thanks for no calling. Maybe Brent. put up a link to the, the book so others can read the passage if they'd like. Oh yeah. No problem. I'll find it on Amazon. Okay. Thanks, Thanks for calling. Brent. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, bye. like you were talking about, Tiffany, um, one of my children was that way. 
all through childhood, there were people that she just did really not like. And I never forced her to interact with those people, but it, it's almost like she became a meter for us mm-hmm. on on who to kind of be wary about because she it would be like an instant reaction. And even to the point where she would act out in very strange ways because this person was almost like triggering her in a sense. Mm-hmm. But back to what we can do. So Reiki too, giving and receiving Reiki. And it's almost like building that ability to be that flow of energy, Mm -hmm. practicing it and giving, you know, uh, support when people need it. And, you know, especially if you are in a work environment or as we talked about earlier in the show, you know, maybe you're at a school and, and those things are discouraged, but but even just touching someone's hand or, again, touching someone's shoulder and just being there, you know, share with, are you okay? And, and let them have the opportunity to just release that, like mm-hmm. the huggy guy from Sydney, you know, was doing just that opportunity for, for that cathartic moment. Yeah. So. I don't know if this is a cultural thing, but I like playing in people's hair and like doing the hair. And I don't think I get enough of that. So I'm going to try and do some more of that, too. <laughs> it's not like you're just touching their hair. You're touching their head and their ears and you're moving their shoulders to kind of position them in the way that you want so you can reach their head more easily. <laughs> exactly. So anything that our other co-hosts would like to add, we're going to um, start to wrap up here. We have a pet health segment that ties into our topic today. and We seem to have lost Doug, but... Elliot, anything? Um, what can I add? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, just to remind everyone who's listening probably not a good idea to just go walk down the street and just start hugging random people (laughs) you can upset people that way you can put yourself in danger (laughs) so best not to do that i think uh you know on a practical level maybe just the people that you know as has already been said your friends or your family just try and make make a concerted effort um to to give them more physical affection as long as that's reciprocated, you know, gain consent first <laughs> if you have to, if it's that situation or maybe it just comes naturally. But I've, I've personally, since doing the research for the show, I've um, I've kind of made like a, I would say a New Year's resolution, but it's not, it's halfway through the year. So it's not a New Year's resolution, but it's a resolution it's an anyway. New Year's resolution. Yeah, exactly. A it was mid-year. a half, half years. <laughs> yeah, mid, mid year's resolution. And that's, that's in my in my life to try and start showing people more physical affection because I know that that's personally uh, a niche, kind of like a semi-issue for me. It brings up feelings of, of feeling uncomfortable and maybe possibly anxious. Um, but but it's knowing how important this is, it's like, you know, I'm just going to consciously try to work through that and, um, and try to show the people that I love some physical affection because they deserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I encourage all, all listeners to try and do that as well. I'm with you, Elliot. Yeah. I'll give you a big hug next time I see you. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> we could schedule hugs every couple of hours. 
That's a good idea. We could have a hugathon. <laughs> <laughs> and don't forget group hugs. Group hugs are fun. Mm. All right. So if if everyone's ready, we go to the pet health segment here. Okay. Sounds good. I can get this to work. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today I would like to share with you a TED Talk by Dr. Rustin Moore, where he shares about the power of the human-animal bond and the benefits of having a pet. And there are definitely a lot of benefits. Enjoy! How many of you grew up with a pet or have one now? Wow. That looks about right. Actually, over 70% of people in America have at least one pet or companion animal. In fact, kids are more likely to live with a pet than what they are with their biological father or siblings. And children 7 to 8 years of age rank pets higher than people as providers of comfort, self-esteem, and as confidants. Animals are such agreeable friends. They ask no questions. They pass no criticism. So wrote George Eliot. That's a big reason we love them so much. Uh-oh. Oh, my gosh. I don't know who stuck this photo in there of me back in the day when I had some pretty long hair. But anyway, back then when I was growing up in rural West Virginia, I had all types of pets and animals. And when I became a veterinarian, I also... And an equine surgeon, I have treated countless animals in my career. However, one patient sticks out. While on the faculty at LSU, I treated a very special patient, a pony named Molly. After Hurricane Katrina, Molly became stranded in a barn for nearly 10 days before she was rescued, adopted, and taken to a nearby farm. Unfortunately, about two months later, she was attacked by a dog, and the power of the dog's bite crushed the blood vessels, and effectively killed the lower part of her right front leg. Her veterinarian contacted me to ask if I would be willing to consider doing an amputation and fitting Molly with a prosthesis. After some debate and being very skeptical, I decided that after watching Molly, it was in fact her that convinced me if there was ever a patient to perform this on, it was her. Fortunately, ten years later, Molly is still going strong. However, her purpose and role in life have changed. She now visits cancer camps, children's hospitals, veteran care and elder care facilities, and gives them hope and courage and lets them know that it's okay to look and be different. I will never forget the confident smile on this young boy's face who lost a leg to bone cancer or to this elderly veteran amputee who literally came to life when they met Molly. Molly is a perfect example of the power of the human-animal bond. In many instances, an animal or pet is the most important or stable part of a family structure, perhaps the only positive relationship someone has. We know that women who are in situations of domestic violence will oftentimes not leave it simply because they're fearful for what might happen to that pet left behind. And yet, very few shelters will allow a pet. Bev and Roy are homeless here in Columbus, Ohio. They have been offered shelter and housing, but will not take it because they would have to leave their 
four-legged furry family members behind. When asked, why not just give up your pets, get off the street, and get into housing, they both said to me, we cannot do that. I cannot give up Boo Boo or Tigger. He's my family. That would be like me giving up my child. Now listen to that. People in situations of homelessness or domestic violence will not give up their pets. That's a powerful bond. Research has shown and is recognizing the importance of this human-animal bond on the health and well-being of individuals, families, and communities. Researchers have coined a term for this phenomenon, zoea. (coughs) Zoea are those positive health benefits for their physical, social, behavioral, emotional, mental, or psychological for people who have a pet or interact with one. So why care about this? The reason is it's important for us to convince the healthcare community of the need for change, from from physicians to caregivers, insurance providers to policymakers, they need to understand and recognize the legitimate impact and importance of animals on the health and well-being of people. You're probably sitting there saying, okay, show me the proof. Well, I will share some examples and data that I'm pretty confident will convince you of this phenomenon. There's been substantial research documenting this, and I will provide some, including some physiological evidence, including hormonal changes, decreases in stress and blood pressure, improved weight loss, decreases in cholesterol and triglycerides, among other health benefits. Billions of dollars are saved each year in the healthcare system when people are healthy, and it's been shown that animals play a vital role in that good physical and mental health. I will share three examples with you where it's been shown that pet interaction is actually having a positive benefit on these individuals, autism, Alzheimer's, and post-traumatic stress syndrome. Autistic spectrum disorder is actually a complex developmental disability that typically first manifests in early childhood and is characterized by an inability to communicate or interact socially with others. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have estimated that the prevalence of this has increased to 1 in 68 births in the United States, or 1 in 54 boys. Take a moment and read this letter from a 14-year-old autistic boy who was at a correctional facility in Marysville, Ohio, and he was being treated for physical, emotional, and learning challenges. Isn't it ironic that what he identified that Oswald needed, which he was actually training to become an adoptable dog, were the very things that he needed as a child but did not experience. Family, love, fun, people to be around, and a set of rules to follow. Oswald gave this boy a chance for a better life. And that's only one of the reasons I'm so passionate about the human-animal bond. Research with people that have Alzheimer's or dementia are remarkably similar. Nearly 5.5 million people in the United States have Alzheimer's, and millions more have other forms of dementia. So how can an animal or a pet help these individuals? They serve as companions. Dogs are naturally born listeners and can provide positive nonverbal feedback and communication. And animals have been shown to decrease anxiety, agitation, and aggressive behavior. This is Alan when he was 78 years old. He has non-Alzheimer's dementia and was participating in an equine therapeutic intervention study along with some others and part of that was to visit horses on a regular basis. After every visit to the horses, Alan would repeatedly ask, when can we go see Jack? Can I ride Jack? Can I have Jack? 
Well, Alan could remember much, but he never forgot these horse experiences. And in fact, four years later, on his 82nd birthday, he asked again, when can we go see Jack? Can I ride him? Can I have him? And so you can see the power and importance of the human-animal bond is as strong as ever, regardless of age or mental capacity. Post-traumatic stress syndrome, or PTSD, is a psychiatric disorder that can occur following the witnessing or experiencing of a life-threatening or traumatic event, whether that be combat in a war zone, a serious accident, a natural disaster, a terrorist attack, or physical or sexual assault. Nearly 8% of Americans will deal with PTSD sometime during their lifetime. Meet Ryan. Ryan is a first-year student at our College of Veterinary Medicine. I first became acquainted with Ryan last year when I read his personal essay as part of his application to veterinary school. And with Ryan's permission, I'm going to share his story. Ryan grew up like I did in rural West Virginia, and he had a cocker spaniel named Jim that was his confidant for 11 years. When Jim died, Ryan experienced true grief for the first time at the age of 17. Seeking adventure in his life, he joined the Army and was later deployed to a war zone where he was critically injured. In fact, so much so that he had to retire from the military with medical conditions and also with a diagnosis of PTSD. Ryan said that although he recovered physically, the damage that was done would require more than medicine to heal. His mother, watching him struggle, gave him a life-changing gift a runty Great Dane puppy that Ryan named Izzy. In Ryan's application, he said, This dog saved my life. It amazes me how the bond we developed brought me back to life. Izzy got me through some difficult times. When Izzy died about two years ago, Ryan's roommate noticed that Ryan was slipping backward in dealing with his PTSD. And he said to Ryan, Maybe you should get another dog. And Ryan said, Maybe I should. And so together they went out and found another Great Dane puppy. And Ryan appropriately and ironically named this new puppy and companion, Maybe. Ryan says that he's thankful and grateful for for, uh, Maybe to help him get through and be successful in the stressful and rigorous demands of veterinary school. Now this Great Dane puppy will become a big dog. And not everyone can handle a Great Dane. So it's wise to consult a veterinarian about the most appropriate type of pet for a given situation so that you can actually achieve the health benefits that's meant to be had by having a pet. Also, not everyone can have a pet for a variety of reasons. Fortunately, it's been shown that even brief interactions with a pet can have those same positive benefits. So therefore, seek out opportunities and activities where you can interact with a pet or an animal Perhaps you volunteer at a local shelter and walk dogs, or maybe you just go visit your friends or family who have a pet. So armed with this information, what can we do? We can tell our family and friends about Zuea and the positive health benefits on us, which is scientifically proven. We can talk to the healthcare professionals on the human side and encourage change. Medical teams should be asking patients about pets in the medical history taking. The reason is this has been shown to increase rapport and trust with the physician and the entire healthcare team, which is likely to lead to the patient re- revealing information important to their healthcare. If you have a pet, 
and you're not asked about it in the medical history taking, take the time to tell them about the pet and the important role it plays in your life. We can also heighten the awareness among the health profession about the importance of incorporating a pet into the therapeutic or wellness plan because this has been shown to increase patient compliance. You can also simply ask your doctor or a healthcare professional how a pet might improve your health or that of a loved one. And finally, encourage your physician to write a prescription for a pet or an interaction with one. Speaking of that, and on a personal note, about a year ago, I was written this prescription, or I was given this prescription. Adopt two black miniature schnauzers and spend at least 10 minutes with them as needed to decrease stress and anxiety. I took that advice. And since adopting Travis Lincoln and Teddy Luther in December of 2014, my life and perspectives have changed dramatically. My stress level is down, my priorities are different, and my personal and professional relationships are enhanced. I can tell you that Travis and Teddy make me laugh and smile multiple times (coughs) a day, every day. So what can we do? We can actually encourage the healthcare profession, the public, governmental agencies, health insurance providers, and others to understand, accept, and embrace the power and importance of the human-animal bond and zoea. Remember the power of a pet. Now, I couldn't end this without introducing you to the two boys in my life that have actually enriched it and inspired this presentation. So join me in welcoming Travis Lincoln and Teddy Luther. Thank you, Zoya, for that pet health segment. So a lot of the same aspects mm-hmm. discussed mm-hmm. with animals. Yeah, yeah. Those uh, those goats sounded like they had lots of good touch. <laughs> <laughs> Hug a goat today. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> or a cat, or a dog, or a mm. rat. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening. And uh, we apologize for our technical difficulties. I'm glad we could uh, get our message out today. And uh, thank you for our chatters and uh, for Brent for calling in. We look forward to hearing, seeing you or airing next (laughs) Friday. (laughs) Please be sure to turn into Sunday's show, uh, Behind the Headlines. And uh, hope everyone has a wonderful weekend and virtual hugs to everyone. Virtual hugs and yeah, hug a friend or just pat them on the back. <laughs> Have a great day. 